It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Douglas Lefty Lefrovich, who has managed to combine magic, adult material, and late night as producer and host of Late Night Magic at the Alexis Park All Suite Resort, Fridays and Saturdays at 11 p.m. Late Night Magic is a magical variety show that features sideshow stunts, mentalism, visual, and optical illusions, dirty jokes, and amazing manipulation. For ticket information, go to modernvegas.com and for everything about Douglas, Go to douglaslefrovich.com, and that's not easy to say three times real fast. And then you can follow him on Facebook and at YouTube. And Douglas, welcome to the show. I got to be honest with you, Ira. You made it sound so good. I kind of want to go see the show myself. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for you to see it because you're in it. But yes. Absolutely. But the way you read it, it sounded great. So I'm excited. <laughs> so magic came early to you, didn't it? It did. I actually did my first show when I was four years old for my pre-kindergarten class. I had rehearsed one trick. Uh, I got up and I was wearing brown corduroy pants, a green turtleneck, and a black plastic derby. And I had a yellow and green silk that were tied together. And I passed it through my hand three times. And on the third time, it turned to a red and blue silk tied together. And then I bowed. There was no reaction, and I ran over and started crying to my mom. So that was my first experience with doing magic. So despite your first defeat, you came back for more. Yes. I feel like over the years, I've learned <laughs> probably more in defeat than I have in success. <laughs> Which is actually good lessons. I, I thought you were going to tell me after you described your outfit that the magic was that you survived the show. Yeah, yeah that too. Yeah. That too. Now, so. people may think of you just as this guy, but okay. You were named 2021 Magician of the Year by the Society of America Magicians. That's pretty impressive. Yes. That's pretty impressive. Was there one thing they pointed out as to why you were named that? In other words, was there a particular illusion or your whole career or just the fact that you gave them $10,000 to do a benefit in your name? Uh, I, I, luckily, I did not have to give them uh, any <laughs> money. But uh, So Parent Assembly, number one, is the first magic society for the society of american magicians and it was formed in new york and many many years ago harry houdini was a member and became the president of that organization and growing up my father became a member and then when my brother and i were old enough to become members we became members and every year they would have a show where they would honor a magician and people like Jeff McBride, who's a staple in Las Vegas and known all around the world, and David Copperfield, one magician of the year, Harry Blackstone Jr. So for me, growing up in the society and in that organization and winning the award was a real honor. And I think it was, you know, sort of saying to me, you've done a lot over many, many years. You know, for years I toured the world with a large rock and roll magic show and the last 10 years, I've been the guest act in Murray's show from the Tropicana to Planet Hollywood to back to the Tropicana. Murray Sawchuk, for those of our listeners who may not know who you're referring to. 
Yes, Murray Sawchuk, who's known as Murray the Magician, who has a show right now currently at the Tropicana, Thursday to Sunday at 4 p.m. inside the Laugh Factory. He'll thank so you I've for mentioning that. <laughs> yes, so I've been lucky enough to be the guest act in his show over the last 10 years. And then over the last year and a half, I've been able to produce and host and perform in Late Night Magic, which is sort of my new pet project. So I think the members of the society said, hey, this guy's been doing it for a long time. Let's honor him with Magician of the Year. Technical question, parent assembly, what does that mean in the world of the Society of American Magicians? What, what does that mean? Uh, it's just the assembly name. Okay. You know, each different assemblies have different names. Okay. So this one's just called Parent Assembly. And I think it comes from the fact that it was the first one. Right. And there are assemblies throughout the United States and maybe around the world? Absolutely. There's ones all across the country and uh, different cities across the country. There's different societies. Let's also point out that you were, and this is just to toot your horn. I'm going to do it for you. You were also the recipient of the International Magician Society 2016 Merlin Award for Best Sleight of Hand Artist. Yes, that was wonderful when I was the guest act in Murray's show at Planet Hollywood, Murray the Magician, Murray Sawchuck. At Planet Hollywood, I won that award for my card manipulation act, which I feel like is one of the best acts, and I say that in parentheses, in terms of I don't think I'm the best technical magician in the world, but I think because in Murray's show I play this disgruntled stagehand, and then at one point in the show, about half an hour into the show, Murray leaves the stage and my character picks up a playing card. And all of a sudden you see that he starts to do magic and manipulation. And I feel like the crowd roots for me because they think for the first half hour of the show, I'm just a stagehand. And then they realize, wait, he tricked us. He's actually a magician. <laughs> so I think in terms of the character and the way the act is structured, it's very different. A lot of magicians who perform in magic competitions do a lot of incredible sleight of hand when it makes cards appear and disappear. And to a magician, we look at the technique. Oh, look at the way he made that card appear. And I always tell people to a lay audience, to a regular audience, if I produce a card five different ways, a magician will be able to understand which ones are easier or more technical, but to a regular audience, I'm just producing a card. It doesn't matter how I produce it. They look at it as my hand is empty and then there's a card there. Right. So I've tried to create an act that really is different and appeals to a regular audience. Despite your defeat in school, you went on to magic with your, with your father and your brother, but what brought you to Las Vegas? My old business partner and I had a show in Atlantic City at the Sands Casino called Manhattan Magic. And it was a big show, kind of like a Broadway show. But instead of using music to forward the story, we used magic. Our characters wore bright color zoot suits. It was set in the 1940s New York. It had a very much Dick Tracy feel, the movie with Warren Beatty and Madonna with bright colors, over-the-top props. And after we had done that show in Atlantic City, we had moved out to Las Vegas with the goal of trying to sell it out here. And we met the president at the time of New York, New York Hotel, Felix Rappaport. Great guy. Who grew up under the tutelage of Steve Wynn, 
who was very entertainment forward, very entertainment minded. And at the time at New York, New York, they had a show called Lord of the Dance in their main showroom. And after a couple of months, we finally had a meeting with Felix and his team and we pitched our show. And about halfway through the pitch, Felix stopped and said, I want the show. I want you guys to be the afternoon show in our theater. And we couldn't believe it. It was our first pitch in Vegas and we couldn't believe we got the deal. And then a week later, we got the unfortunate call that Cirque du Soleil decided to spend reportedly $34 million and blow out the theater and redo the theater and put in their first topless show called Zumanity. Close, but no cigar or close. No cigar. Close no a, cigar. Close and a disappearing it took me, it cigar. It took me about six months before I could go see the show because right, I of had course. a lot of resentment. <laughs> hey, that's natural. Yeah, Felix was a great guy. And it was interesting, too, because you mentioned Lord of the Dance. I was their publicist during the time they were at New York, New York. So it's a very small world all the way around. So once you realized that Zoomanity had zoomed you out of there, what was your next step? I toured the world when we had our act that the show was based on in Atlantic City. One of the reasons why we put the act together the way we did was because we wanted to travel the world. So our act, we had a 13-minute act that was all to music because our logic was similar to Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and the great silent comedians of the past. If you work to music, it would work in any language. So if you're a talking act and you go to Japan or Brazil and you don't speak the language, even though many people speak English, there is a bit of a barrier. So we had toured the world. And at the time, when we came to Vegas in January of 2002, ironically, Vegas, that's sort of when Vegas changed. You know, all of a sudden the introduction of the four wall happened, where if you don't know what a four wall is, it means the casino gives you the theater, and the four walls, and then you have to pay for everything. So before that, a lot of times what a casino would do is they would pay for the show. They would pay $20,000 a week, $40,000 a week. And then as the producer, you would reverse engineer how much you could spend on acts in the show, dancers, scenery costs, and then whatever you had left over would be your profit. And... A lot of times in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a casino would have a show that was a lost leader, where they weren't necessarily trying to make money on the show, but it was a way to get people to come to the casino and stay at the casino. You know, I tell people that they don't realize when the Rat Pack was at the Sands, 80% of the show was calm. So what would happen is if you were gambling and you were gambling a lot of money, the pit boss would walk up to you and say, hey, would you in your life like to go see a show? You'd quote unquote, take a break, watch the show, have a couple more drinks, and then you'd come back and gamble. You know, I remember reading an article where Steve Wynn, when he had Siegfried and Roy at the Mirage, he said, how do I get somebody to cross the street? The odds in my casino are the same as the odds across the street. How do I get somebody to walk across the street and enter my casino. And that's one of the driving forces of the reason why he had Siegfried and Roy. Now, this is before the advent of celebrity restaurants and celebrity chefs, nightclubs, shopping malls, where now there's so many different things that a casino uses to keep people on property 
But for many years, and Steve Wynn was definitely a pioneer, his thought process was, if I have great entertainment, that's a way to get people to come to the property. Do you think that you have a foot in the old school entertainment world and the other foot in the new entertainment world? Yes. Part of me wishes I could go back in time where I feel like it might have been easier when the mafia ran things and it was more straightforward. You know, one of the challenges with some casinos on the strip is it becomes very corporate and there's so many different layers and so many different people you have to deal with. You have your marketing director, your entertainment director, the president of the casino, the regional director, the head of corporate. There's so many different people where I feel like back in the day, if the president of the hotel gave you the blessing, that's all you needed. You know, there wasn't that. And I understand why it's better for the corporations, MGM Grand and Caesars, to be a corporation and have many different properties. But there was something nice when each property was running itself. I feel like they did what was best for their property, as opposed to now you have to keep in mind, if you have nine properties, you're not going to have a magic show at every property because you say, if I have two magic shows, then I need to have diverse product to offer people at the other properties, as opposed to if you're individually run, I feel like you want to bring the best show possible. So, But on the other hand, you have the foresight to realize that because Las Vegas has changed, and I've been here a long time, and I've seen the changes, but you're able to put together the show in Las Vegas and put a twist to it so it's unique. And let's talk a little bit about Late Night Magic. How did you come up with that idea, that concept, and then a couple of the steps that you had to take to make it work for you? So originally, I was approached by a gentleman named Michael Mayfield, who is a close-up magician. And he had the idea to have a late night magic show featuring some local magicians who maybe didn't have an hour worth of time, maybe didn't have the notoriety of winning America's Got Talent, maybe didn't have the funding and the backing to mount their own show in a Vegas casino. It's a blessing and a curse, but when I come on board for a project, I have a bad tendency to want to take over and make the project as great as possible. And I helped develop the name Late Night Magic. I came up with the logo. And originally it was designed as something to do every couple of months for locals. And then you realize that unfortunately locals don't want to pay. So it is a very unfortunate circumstance where it's very hard to make money and pay the acts. And then ironically, the pandemic happened. And when things started to open up, I got a call from a producer friend of mine, Pete Housley of Admit VIP. And he was one of the few people that was smart enough to figure out a way to open shows during the pandemic. So he took over two large rooms at Alexis Park and figured out a way to have the social distancing between the front row and the stage how to separate the tables six feet apart. And I admire the fact that he thought outside the box. You know, I look at big companies like AEG Live and Live Nation and Cirque du Soleil. And with those giant shows, they weren't able to open to a capacity of 50 people or a capacity of 100 people. You know, 
O would not be able to survive at the Bellagio if a hundred people came to see the show unless they charged $2,000 a ticket. So he reached out to me and he said, Hey, I have a late night spot open. Would you want to do your late night magic show? And different than what you're doing now, where you're trying to go after locals, I think we should go after tourists and do it every weekend. And at the time, I think there might've been 15 shows open. And of the 15 shows open, he had eight of them. So ironically, we did very, very well during the pandemic because there were very few things to do. The headlining shows like a Katy Perry or a Bruno Mars weren't open. The big Cirque du Soleil shows weren't open. Nightclubs weren't open. So if you wanted to do something, quote unquote, structured at night, we were one of the only viable options. So it was great to build the show over that period of time. And similar to a Cirque show and a show like Absinthe or Atomic Saloon by Spiegel World, our show has a main cast. It's myself as the host. We have John Shaw, who does sideshow stuff. Anna Rose, who combines hypnosis and mentalism. We have Bizarro, who creates all the magic he does in the show and is known as the optical illusionist. And then we have Mandre, who's amazing at sleight of hand and does an act where he produces doves. But what's great is that if one of the acts has to go out of town for a corporate gig or a family event, there's so many wonderful magicians in Vegas that we can just sub in the act. So different than going to see a headlining act, if Chris Angel isn't there, you wouldn't want to see a replacement. You're going to see Chris Angel do his show. With our show, we have a little bit more flexibility. It's more about the brand, Late Night Magic. And the fact is we can switch out different acts. So we also like that for locals because you might see the act one weekend and then two weekends later, there might be two or three different acts in the show. Yeah, it's a great concept. And I assume that of all the people you mentioned, you're the one that's in charge of the dirty jokes. Yes, yes. I am the one in charge of dirty jokes sometimes, John. And we've now corrupted Anna Rose, where occasionally <laughs> she has a bad word or two. But I tell people it's interesting. The first night I did the show at Alexis Park and I came out, I told two or three jokes and I bombed. Did not get a reaction. And on the drive home, I thought to myself, who are the people that are coming to the show and what have they done that day? Well, what does someone do? during the day before they in the casino when they've had one or two drinks and maybe they have a drink in their room and they have a drink or two at dinner. So by the time they come to our show, they've had a couple of drinks. They're loose. They want to have a good time. And because it's adults only and it's the only adults only magic show, I realized I have to come out and sort of punch them in the face. I have to grab their attention. You know, when you go see another magic show, like if you go see Murray's show, he has a couple of jokes in the show that I call Simpsons humor, where if you watch The Simpsons, there's humor for the adults where it's wink, wink. The adults get it, but it goes over the heads of kids. And I feel like almost every magic show has one or two of those moments where the adults get it, but the kids don't. What's nice about our show is because it's only for adults, we don't have to dance around it. We can just come out 
And I feel like it adds to sort of the adult party atmosphere. You know, there's times where the crowd's yelling stuff out and we're interacting and I get somebody out on stage and it's a funny bit. So I think that I've realized now when you've had a couple of drinks and you're having a couple of drinks at the show, being adult is okay because there's only adults in the room. The other interesting thing about the show is that in a way it's counter-programming to what Las Vegas has become. And what I mean by that is that in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you usually had late shows. So you had a performer come in doing two shows a night and you'd had that late show. There's very little of that these days. And so you are act- you're actually finding a market for that late night, which is at 11 o'clock, which is pretty late in today's world. I mean, there are midnight shows. There used to be midnight shows. But 11 o'clock is pretty late and you're going past an hour anyway. So I think that works for you in that sense. It's counter-programming to what the typical show offerings are on the Strip and downtown. Ira, I'm glad you brought that point up. So what I realized is that I wonder sometimes, well, who comes to the show? And I realize if you don't want to go see a topless female or a male strip show and you don't want to go to a comedy club, there's very limited late night shows. And I think there's also a lot of people that if you're a couple, especially, you don't want to go to a nightclub and spend $500 on bottle service because you're already with the person. It's not like, you know, it's a group of guys and you're going out trying to meet some girls, even though you never do. (laughs) So I feel like it becomes a late night option for people who want to have fun, who want to do something adult oriented, something a little bit structured if they don't want to walk around the strip. So we become a nice option. You know, it's ironic how I've seen a bunch of couples come to our show. A couple of weeks ago, we had a bachelorette party and I feel like they had probably seen Thunder from Down Under the night before. And they thought we still want to do something fun and adult, but we don't need to see another strip show. We don't need to go see Magic Mike or Chippendales the next night. Let's do something else. And they had a great time. I called the bachelorette up on stage and we did this funny trick and they were taking pictures. And I think they had a great time because it was still adult fun, but it was different than the typical go to see a male review. And the fact that they didn't want to see Douglas naked. Yes. No one, I, no one wants to see that, unfortunately. So I do do, I do, do a, a little sexy dance, but I don't take any clothes off. I would think, too, ironically, that as the show gathers steam and attracts more and more visitors, that you're going to start to see more and more locals because they're going to hear about it. Yes, we get a fair amount of locals. You know, we're also on some different sites where locals can get discounts or free tickets. And like I said, We've had some good support, especially on social media, where I've had friends come to the show. And one of the comments they say is, wow, it's so different than it was a month ago. And depending on what night you come, you might see a different act or we try to update the show. And of course, as you said, being at 11 o'clock, we've been very fortunate. You know, the magic community has really come out to support us. David Copperfield Uh, And his executive producer, Chris Kenner, have come three times. Chris Angel's come, Mike Hammer, Murray Sawchuck, Colin Cloud. We just had Matt Franco, Nathan Burton. So being late night, it's been great. But I think that because it's a variety of magicians, you know, different than 
almost every other magic show in town, it's one guy. And when I put together the show, I really wanted to put together a diverse cast. You know, I wanted to look at the landscape of what was going on in the world and how do I make the show look more like the audience? And I think the nice thing about variety is that if one act isn't your cup of tea, in 10 or 12 minutes, there's another act. The concept is good, but do you have, this is a sensitive question, but do you have an understudy in case you get a cold or something? Absolutely. There's been times where I've gone out of town and John Shaw has stepped in to host and other people have hosted. Like I said, because you know the show is not branded to a particular act, even though we have a main cast, people can fill in, which is really nice. Do you survey the audience afterwards to get a sense of what they liked about the show and what they didn't like about the show? And then do you adjust some of it based on that? I don't do it after the show. Ironically, I will do it during the show. So because there's a lot of comedy and there's a lot of magic in the show, probably about 10 minutes in, if when I leave the stage, I'll come backstage and say to the acts, hey, it's a magic crowd. So I'll let them know so they can edit what they say. Maybe they take out a couple of jokes and they focus more on the magic. Then there's times where I come backstage and I say, wow, this is a real comedy crowd. And I let them know, lean into the jokes. If you get a good person from the audience, you know, you can riff and you can play with them and have fun. So it's definitely reading the audience and, you know, adapting as the show goes on. Do you think down the line that you'll increase the number of nights that the show will be presented? And also, do you think you might expand it to other markets down the way? I would love to, Ira. And if you're ready to invest, we are ready to have you come on board. But yeah, I would love to. I'd love to move it to, you know, four or five nights a week and expand. It's just I tell people, even though Vegas to a novice looks busy, it's not the way it was before the pandemic. And I think that there's a series of things that have affected it. You know, conventions have not come back like they used to. Gas prices. I think a lot of people in the L.A., Arizona markets, instead of driving to Vegas on a whim, let's go to Vegas for two, three days. I think people are staying closer to home. I think inflation has made people realize they have to be careful with their money. And if you're watching the news, you realize this summer it has been horrific with air travel. I mean, I've had lots of performers who have tried to fly back the morning of a show and they've ironically missed their performance that night because they've got stuck in a city for their layover. So if you're not used to traveling a lot, if you only fly once or twice a year, that's a very daunting task. You know, when I was younger and I toured, your flight gets delayed. Okay, you got to go to the customer service desk. They get you a hotel. You can go to a hotel. You come back. You realize it's part of the travel. It's like if you travel enough, occasionally your bag's going to get lost. It's just you're playing the odds. But for someone who doesn't do it that often, I think it's a very scary thing. So if you have a wedding plan that you're going to, I think people are still going to come to Vegas. But this summer, I feel like a lot of people stayed closer to home because of the different factors. Last question, and it's more of a global question, but it is about Las Vegas. Future of magic from your perspective, will there always be magic in Las Vegas? I think there will always be magic in Las Vegas because people come here 
wanting to live the dream. And the dream is you hope that you put a quarter in a slot machine and you win a million dollars because anything is possible. And I think when you have that mentality, magic sort of fits into that realm. You know, oh, he had a silk in his hand and all of a sudden a dove appeared. You know, you go see David Copperfield and he makes an alien appear and a spaceship appears over your head. I feel like Vegas is one of the few places in the world where people come and they sort of suspend their belief in reality and they hope that anything is possible. And I think that's what magic is, you know, suspending belief and believing in the impossible. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Douglas Lefty Lefervich. He's producer and host of Late Night Magic at the Alexis Park All Suite Resort, Fridays and Saturdays at 11 p.m. Late Night Magic is a magical variety show that features sideshow stunts, mentalism, visual and optical illusions, dirty jokes, and amazing manipulation. For ticket information, go to modernvegas.com. And for everything about Douglas, go to douglaslevervich.com and follow him on Facebook and YouTube. Douglas, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ira. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,